Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. The Everlasting Man by G.K. Chesterton Part 2 On the Man Called Christ Chapter 3 The Strangest Story in the World Part 2 Divinity is great enough to be divine. It is great enough to call itself divine. But as humanity grows greater, it grows less and less likely to do so. God is God, as the Muslims say. But a great man knows he is not God. And the greater he is, the better he knows it. That is the paradox. Everything that is merely approaching to that point is merely receding from it. Socrates, the wisest man, knows that he knows nothing. A lunatic may think he is omniscience, and a fool may talk as if he were omniscient. But Christ is in another sense omniscient, if he not only knows, but knows that he knows. Even on the purely human and sympathetic side, therefore, the Jesus of the New Testament seems to me to have in a great many ways the note of something superhuman. That is, of something human and more than human. But there is another quality running through all his teachings, which seems to me neglected in most modern talk about them as teachings, and that is the persistent suggestion that he has not really come to teach. If there is one incident in the record, which affects me personally as grandly and gloriously human. It is the incident of giving wine for the wedding feast. That is really human in the sense in which a whole crowd of prigs, having the appearance of human beings, can hardly be described as human. It rises superior to all superior persons. It is as human as Herrick and as democratic as Dickens. But even in that story, there is something else that has that note of things not fully explained, and in a way, here, very relevant. I mean the first hesitation, not on any ground touching the nature of the miracle, but on that of the propriety of working any miracles at all, at least at that stage. My time is not yet come. What does that mean? At least it certainly meant a general plan or purpose in the mind, with which certain things did or did not fit in. And if we leave out that solitary strategic plan, we not only leave out the point of the story, but the story. We often hear of Jesus of Nazareth as a wandering teacher, and there is a vital truth in that view insofar as it emphasizes an attitude towards luxury and convention, which most respectable people would still regard as that of a vagabond. It is expressed in his own great saying about the holes of the foxes and the nests of the birds, and, like many of his great sayings, it is felt as less powerful than it is through lack of appreciation of that great paradox by which he spoke of his own humanity as in some way collectively and representatively human, calling himself simply the Son of Man. That is, in effect, calling himself simply man. It is fitting that the new man, 
or the second Adam, should repeat in so ringing a voice, and with so arresting a gesture, the great fact which came first in the original story, that man differs from the brutes by everything, even by deficiency, that he is, in a sense, less normal, and even less native, a stranger upon the earth. It is well to speak of his wanderings in this sense, and in the sense that he shared the drifting life of the most homeless and hopeless of the poor. It is assuredly well to remember that he would quite certainly have been moved on by the police, and almost certainly arrested by the police for having no visible means of subsistence. For our law has it, in a turn of humor or touch of fancy, which Nero and Herod never happened to think of, that of actually punishing homeless people for not sleeping at home. But in another sense, the word wandering, as applied to his life, is a little misleading. As a matter of fact, a great many of the pagan sages, and not a few of the pagan sophists, might truly be described as wandering teachers. In some of them, their rambling journeys were not altogether without a parallel in their rambling remarks. Apollonius of Tyana, who figured in some fashionable cults as a sort of ideal philosopher, is represented as rambling as far as the Ganges and Ethiopia, more or less talking all the time. There was actually a school of philosophers called the Peripatetics and most even of the great philosophers give us a vague impression of having very little to do except to walk and talk. The great conversations which give us our glimpses of the great minds of Socrates, or Buddha, or even Confucius, often seem to be parts of a never-ending picnic, and especially, which is the important point, to have neither beginning nor end. Socrates did indeed find the conversation interrupted by the incidents of his execution, but it is the whole point, and the whole particular merit, of the position of Socrates that death was only an interruption and an incident. We miss the real moral importance of the great philosopher if we miss that point, that he stares at the executioner with an innocent surprise, and almost an innocent annoyance at finding anyone so unreasonable as to cut short a little conversation for the elucidation of truth. He is looking for truth and not looking for death. Death is but a stone in the road which can trip him up. His work in life is to wander on the roads of the world and talk about truth forever. Buddha, on the other hand, did arrest attention by one gesture. It was the gesture of renunciation, and therefore in a sense of denial. But by one dramatic negation, he passed into a world of negation that was not dramatic, which he would have been the first to insist was not dramatic. Here again, we miss the particular moral importance of the great mystic if we do not see the distinction that it was his whole point that he had done with drama, which consists of desire and struggle and generally of defeat and disappointment. He passes into peace and lives to instruct others how to pass into it. Henceforth, his life is that of the ideal philosopher, certainly a far more really ideal philosopher than Apollonius of Tyana, but still a philosopher, in the sense that it is not his business to do anything, but rather to explain everything. In his case, we might almost say 
mildly and softly to explore everything, for the messages are basically different. Christ said, Seek first the kingdom, and all these things shall be added unto you. Buddha said, Seek first the kingdom, and then you will need none of these things. Now compared to these wanderers, the life of Jesus went as swift and straight as a thunderbolt. It was, above all things, dramatic. It did, above all things, consist in doing something that had to be done. It emphatically would not have been done if Jesus had walked about the world forever doing nothing except tell the truth. And even the external movement of it must not be described as a wandering in the sense of forgetting that it was a journey. This is where it was a fulfillment of the myths rather than of the philosophies. It is a journey with a goal and an object, like Jason going to find the golden fleece, or Hercules the golden apples of the Hesperides. The gold that he was seeking was death. The primary thing that he was going to do was to die. He was going to do other things equally definite and objective. We might almost say equally external and material. But from first to last, the most definite fact is that he is going to die. No two things could possibly be more different than the death of Socrates and the death of Christ. We are meant to feel that the death of Socrates was, from the point of view of his friends at least, a stupid muddle and miscarriage of justice, interfering with the flow of a humane and lucid, I had almost said, a light philosophy. We are meant to feel that death was the bride of Christ as poverty was the bride of St. Francis. We are meant to feel that his life was in that sense a sort of love affair with death a romance of the pursuit of the ultimate sacrifice, from the moment when the star goes up like a birthday rocket to the moment when the sun is extinguished like a funeral torch. The whole story moves on wings with the speed and direction of a drama, ending in an act beyond words. Therefore, the story of Christ is the story of a journey, almost in the manner of a military march certainly in the manner of the quest of a hero moving to his achievement or his doom. It is a story that begins in the paradise of Galilee, a pastoral and peaceful land having really some hint of Eden, and gradually climbs the rising country into the mountains that are nearer to the storm clouds and the stars, as to a mountain of purgatory. He may be met as if straying in strange places, or stopped on the way for discussion or dispute, but his face is set towards the mountain city. That is the meaning of that great culmination when he crested the ridge and stood at the turning of the road and suddenly cried aloud, lamenting over Jerusalem. Some light touch of that lament is in every patriotic poem, or if it is absent, the patriotism stinks with vulgarity. That is the meaning, the stirring and startling incident at the gates of the temple, when the tables were hurled like lumber down the steps, and the rich merchants driven forth with bodily blows. The incident that must be at least as much of a puzzle to the pacifists as any paradox about non-resistance can be to any of the militarists. I have compared the quest to the journey of Jason. 
But we must never forget that in a deeper sense, it is rather to be compared to the journey of Ulysses. It was not only a romance of travel, but a romance of return, and of the end of a usurpation. No healthy boy reading the story regards the rout of the Ithacan suitors as anything but a happy ending. But there are doubtless some who regard the rout of the Jewish merchants and money changers with that refined repugnance which never fails to move them in the presence of violence, and especially of violence against the well-to-do. The point here, however, is that all these incidents have in them a character of mounting crisis. In other words, these incidents are not incidental. When Apollonius the ideal philosopher is brought before the judgment seat of Domitian and vanishes by magic, the miracle is entirely incidental. It might have occurred at any time in the wandering life of the Tyanean. Indeed, I believe it is doubtful in date as well as in substance. The ideal philosopher merely vanished and resumed his ideal existence somewhere else for an indefinite period. It is characteristic of the contrast, perhaps, that Apollonius was supposed to have lived to an almost miraculous old age. Jesus of Nazareth was less prudent in his miracles. When Jesus was brought before the judgment seat of Pontius Pilate, he did not vanish. It was the crisis and the goal. It was the hour and the power of darkness. It was the supremely supernatural act of all his miraculous life that he did not vanish. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, twill be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right. <laughs>